0: Hi, welcome to Off Script. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show we'll be discussing DC's latest foray into the film world with Joss Whedon's Zack Snyder's Justice League and chatting about this holiday season's first Disney Pixar film, Coco. But first, let's start with the news. Uh, this week, two big releases are coming to home video, Andy. The Hitman's Bodyguard and Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets.
1: Have you seen either of these movies? No, I have not okay i haven't either (laughs) i thought you had seen valerian no i i i just couldn't bring myself to do it man like it was just the trailers just were not appealing and then it was just it got really poor reviews and i just also kind of wanted to see it bomb because it was i felt like it was really pretentious the whole a lot of the marketing behind it
0: The first trailer for Valerian I liked. I did. Like, I remember watching it in theaters and thinking, okay, like, it kind of... It gave me this sense of adventure. This sense of, okay, this is something different. It's not some mainstream superhero nonsense that we've seen a thousand times. It's new. It's unique. It'll be cool. Yeah, I'll check it out. But then, like, three months went by, and I saw other trailers for it, and I kept seeing promotional material, and I was like, okay, I kind of don't care anymore. Like, at first, it seemed interesting, but I ended up skipping it, um, which is a shame. I feel like I should support you know, new and original movies, but like, it just, it wasn't ringing my bell,
1: you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I think the thing that really annoyed me is that they kept promoting, I guess the way it was financed as a selling point, some sort of thing about like, oh, there's no way he could lose money because of, and I don't know the details of it, but I was like, you know, a sound business strategy Does it, can make me care less about like the film, like, what does that tell me about the quality of the movie? And it was just I saw article after article about like, oh, he's the investors aren't going to lose any money and they're not at risk. And um, well, I was like, well, someone's got to be losing money or someone's got to be at risk. I'm not sure who it was or maybe the director himself removed himself from that, you know, link in the chain. But people definitely lost money and lots of right.
0: Yeah, they had this strange approach like uh, with Richard Linklater's Boyhood when, like that movie, it took like 12 years to make and part of that movie is knowing how it was made. Like that that adds to your experience. As far as Valerian and the City of a Thousand Plants go, like that's great that Luc Besson like finally got to make this incredible film he wanted to make out of this comic way back in the day. Like that's fantastic and that he didn't have to have like big studios behind him to do it and he had all this brilliant Kickstarter funding whatever how he managed to do it but like yeah, man, that's not to say it can't lose money. It was, like, the most expensive French film ever made. Like, of course yeah, it's not going to do that well. Exactly. Um, so it's kind of a bummer. Um, I thought it was funny. In an interview uh, recently, he said that the director, Luc Besson – Besson, am I saying that right? Besson? It's Besson, probably, whatever. He's French. Yeah, said that if he were to make a sequel, he's confident he could do it on a much smaller budget than the original film. Uh, I don't really have a lot to say about this other than it's funny that like the guy who made a movie that was super expensive and bombed is like, well, if you let me do another one, I can do it on the cheap. Like, yeah, of course you can. I, I, <laughs> yeah, of course. I,
1: well, I also heard that he might actually do um, do the sequel via animation, which really? of, which of course is considerably cheaper. <laughs>
0: Well, if they have an animated planet for in Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planet, they, they can go to the animated one, and it'll all be animated, and that'll work. Yeah, I feel. Um,
1: I feel when you jump mediums, like you, you've messed up. It's it's like the the Allegiant series, whatever that that YA series is with uh, Shailene yeah, yeah. Woodley. Like that's gonna finish up <laughs> on as a TV series because you know the movies did progressively worse, and Shailene Woodley just like backed out of. It. She's like, no, I didn't sign up to do TV.
0: Yeah. That is rough. It's like uh, it's funny when you say jump mediums. The first thing I think is like the animatrix, but that was actually kind of good. But that it wasn't a, it wasn't like a theatrical release. Not a lot of people saw it. So,
1: right, exactly. <laughs>
0: Jumping mediums doesn't exactly work out well for you. Um, did you see the Hitman's Bodyguard? No, you didn't. You, you just no, said you told uh, no. No, I didn't.
1: Yeah. I, I heard heard and read uh, several reviews, um, and most of what I heard is well, Samuel L. Jackson does his character. He swears a lot, and then a. Uh, Who else is it? Ryan Reynolds? Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, and then he does Deadpool or he does Ryan Reynolds. You know, he cracks jokes the whole time and it's pretty generic.
0: Right. Yeah, I guess I don't really have much more to say about it. I didn't see it either. Um, It's disappointing. They advertised it very much as a comedy and I heard it was a lot more action and a lot less comedy, which is kind of missing the mark, I suppose. But it looked cool for what it was. I like the kind of angle they took with the uh, Whitney Houston trailer. Sure, yeah. Like the bodyguard. Yeah, I thought that was clever. Um, Making kind of a buddy cop hitman kind of... I don't know. It looked like it could have been something. It's a shame it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, To get into more news, the other story... I got two more stories this week. Uh, In an interview with Yahoo Entertainment... When asked about box office reception for his new film, Blade Runner 2049, director Denis Villeneuve, another tough one, Villeneuve, uh, said he didn't understand why the film didn't meet studio expectations. Blade Runner 2049 was produced on a budget of $150 million, which seeing the film honestly seems kind of cheap because some of the visuals in that movie are incredible. Yeah, Uh, it's
1: it's mind-blowing.
0: While it managed to pull in about $250 million worldwide, it only scooped up about $89 million at the U.S. box office. So that is a loss. That definitely is not a win. Some simple math. Uh, possible reasons by Besson for the film, or uh, Denis Villeneuve, uh, for the film's incredible, warm, critical reception, but poor box office numbers, because it did fail. Like, critics loved it, but general audiences didn't. Sure. Uh, he said it could have been a lack of general understanding about the world of the film, people not understanding, like, where it's coming in, you know, it seems foreign and, and, and strange to kind of get into as far as the settings concerned, or perhaps in a long run time, people didn't want to go sit in a movie for two and a half hours.
1: That's, that's one thing I, I think it, it maybe just, it's a generational thing. Like, I mean, Blade Runner is pretty old at this point. It's nearly, it's, we're approaching 40 years, yeah. you know, 35 years or so. So, you know, the, the people that, that saw it in theater, you know, it's like almost a generation and a half go and so i think there's a whole lot of people who were like well i didn't see the first one i don't really get it or i don't know what the big deal is so it just kind of unfortunately it can find an audience which you is know, sh- which is a shame because it, it you know it's one of my favorite movies of the year
0: it was fantastic yeah if you haven't seen it strongly recommended um i i think about the old blade runner the original and and kind of it's cult cult status now because it didn't do well in theaters either but now it's like you know, people remember it and, and think it was a great movie, and there's a bunch of different cuts in it. It's great. And, and I'm okay with Blade Runner 2049 being that way. Like, like Mark Kermode said, I'm just glad it got made. I'm glad it exists. Like, it, it didn't make budget. That's a shame. But, like, man. Yeah, yeah. You can't take it's, it back.
1: It's, it, it exists. It doesn't it's matter if tri- yeah. bombed. Like it's
0: a triumphant film where I don't want to see it in in five years is in like the four dollar bin at Walmart because that's just going to make me sad. Like right. it's such a, it's For such sure. a good movie. Yeah,
1: it, it it deserves so much better. Well, and it's um, interesting to to comment on on film budgets uh, because a lot of people don't seem to under, understand this. Is that so? Whatever the budget is, you need to usually make at least like three times that much because that d- usually doesn't include the marketing budget. So you're looking at you need to make around 400-500 million to b- make a profit.
0: Right. And the stakes are higher than ever now in Hollywood because we're not just looking to like make a one-off movie anymore. Usually they're looking to start a franchise, they're looking to start a cinematic universe. Sure. Um so in the case of something like 2016's Ghostbusters, that movie cleared the hump, but like it wasn't enough to take off and therefore it didn't work, and they're not going to make another one.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, same can be said with the uh, the Mummy remake and the whole, like, Dark Universe.
0: Ah, uh, yes, Universal's,
1: Universal's Dark Universe series, yeah. I feel like there, there's three tiers of cinematic successful you know, cinematic universes. There's okay. Mar- Marvel, who kind of set the standard, and, you know, they're going to make 30, 50, 100 films. Yep. Um, and they seem to have, to have hit the stride and are doing really well. And then there's DC, which is they've made several films, but they're kind of playing catch up and slowly embarrassing themselves with each subsequent film. And I mean, they're, I, it'll be interesting <laughs> to see what happens a, after justice league. And then you have dark universe, which just has failed to get off the ground. You know, it was supposed to start with Dracula untold and that flops. So they're like, Oh no, it's not really certain with there. We're going to start with the mummy with stomp, stomp, Tom Cruise. Um, and that, did really poor as, as well so i think that that universe might actually be dead on arrival so you, it's interesting to see these different levels of studios trying to start cinematic universes and their ver- various um success or lack thereof
0: sure and defining what success is for these universes because yeah some of these movies are successful but they're not enough to like you know it's not launching a thousand ships or anything it's just one right. movie um one series i think that i haven't watched a lot of so i i might i might be off base here but i think you've watched them uh as far as the cinematic universe goes one you said in october uh is one worth kind of keeping an eye on was is it insidious is it there
1: the, the horror universe that they're putting together is that is that it the insidious series um it i don't think i'm i'm familiar with it but it, it's either that it might be the conjuring oh i think, I think it's I think, a conjuring yeah, yeah th- it's one of them which i've only seen one of but it's it's apparently it's made a ton of money and they've made several branch off films and they're you know they've organically created a cinematic universe a horror verse and it's been really successful and that's kind of how i think these studios should approach they should do a less is more let's make one good film and then another good film and see if we can expand it instead of you know, you have people like DC There's like, okay, we're going to plan 10 films. Oh, the first one was bad. The second one's bad. The third one was okay. The fourth one is bad. It's like, what are you guys doing? Right. And I, <laughs> and it's just what you said, like growing it organically,
0: I think is so important. And I know Marvel kind of forced it, but for the most part, like every, every film that comes out feels like the natu- the natural evolution of what's come before it. It doesn't feel too forced. Um, Marvel's Universal's Dark Universe is definitely forced. From like seeing the Dark Universe logo come up before the Mummy, even though it's the first film in the Dark Universe, to uh, even even a little bit of DC in the Justice League, it's a little you're kind of ramming it down our throats. You know, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't feel like it naturally evolved into what it is today. It also it a
1: feels problem. a little bit backwards as well. Like you know, I think Marvel did a great job of they did the solo character movies they introduce the individual characters and then they throw them together and DC's trying to do the opposite. They're trying to do the group film and then splinter off and do the, the solo films. And it, it just kind of feels like you're putting the cart before the horse. Right.
0: And it's not to say you have to exactly copy what Marvel's doing. In fact, I kind of respect them going in their own direction and saying, no, 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 this is not the only way to make a cinematic universe. We're going to do something
1: different. We're going to try something new. I can get behind that. The problem is it's, it's clearly not working as well. Yeah. <laughs> so- well it, it's the execution. I mean, I could get behind that too. Okay, let's do the group movie and then do the solo movies. That, I mean, that that formula could work, but it's then the group movie has to be awesome. And, I mean, they have great properties. They have arguably the better or more well-known comic book properties. So it's like you can only screw it up. Right. You know, It, it kind of writes, writes itself.
0: Since we're starting to dig into DC a little bit, this seems like an optimal segue to my last news story
1: followed by
0: Justice League. Um, I want to talk about this petition for Zack Snyder's original cut of Justice League. Um, (laughs) Yes. Fans of Snyder's original vision for the Justice League film put together a petition demanding DC release his original cut of the film, which was reportedly three hours long before production was taken over by Joss Whedon in the last six months before release. The fan petition for Zack Snyder's Justice League has now reached a little over 130,000 signatures last I saw it, which is, I mean, that's nothing to scoff at. News of which, which reached Mr. Snyder uh, via social media, who liked a post, linking it on Facebook. And one of the things I thought was really interesting about this story, um, the signatures on the petition aren't exclusively limited to fans. Uh, two, two noteworthy people who signed it is Ben Affleck's stunt double in Justice League. So the stunt double <laughs> Batman signed it. And the one that's really interesting, the film cinematographer signed it. Which actually really intrigues me. Because he shot the film, and if he would rather see Zack Snyder's version, what does that say about the differences between Zack Snyder's version and the one we
1: saw? Well, also, I mean, I, I don't think you're going to get a good product mixing two directors, like because you're doing this patchwork thing where you know Joss Whedon had to come in, do reshoots, and shove them into the original cut. Like, I I mean, I don't know how you expect that to be a good product. Before we do. Before we dig too far into that, okay. I wanted to say real quick,
0: Coco was directed by two people. But that was like, they did it at the same time. It wasn't like one did it and then the other one stepped in right at the end. There's a difference.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and also, you know, I would love to see Joss Whedon's Justice League or just Zach like, but doing like this combination of, oh, this looks terrible. Let's get another director in to, to see if we can salvage this. It's just, it's like, that's never going to be a good product, I feel.
0: Right. And that's part of the issue with like I'd mentioned earlier the with boyhood Richard Linklater's film and the way it was made that's part of the issue with Justice League knowing how it was made I'm not sure if that's detrimental or not to your experience watching the film but I can't help but feel that it hurts because there were definitely times watching the movie I thought to myself okay who who am I watching here is this is this Snyder or Whedon you know who am I who am I getting out of this and I hope that most of it's Zack Snyder. I mean, the film still opens with a Zack Snyder film. It's still, he's billed as the director.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I, it's funny because I heard you can tell all the, if the scene is dark, it's Snyder. And if it's light, then it's, <laughs> it's Joss Whedon. <laughs> But but you know I mean sometimes it can work because it makes you think of Rogue One because same thing happened they they fired the directors about halfway through they did a bunch of expensive reshoots and they, you know they got a pretty good Star Wars film I know you hate it you call it Rage One but Rage One <laughs> but uh, you know they salvaged whatever it was like I can watch that and not think oh this is clearly two different directors
0: yeah it's true I I don't think it's two yeah I don't I I think of Rogue One as one. Unified experience. It's true. I I, I'm never think I like I know they had other people come in, but I'm never thinking oh this must have been where they changed something. Okay, well, I take it back. There's a couple times when I thought that, but for the most part, I'm never thinking like this is the mind of somebody else I've just stepped into. You know, when it's when a scene change happens, it's not like oh suddenly I'm in a different world. Um, not to get too far into it, but let's let's kind of take a step back and dig into Justice League a little bit. Um, we both saw the movie. You saw it the night it came out, right? Yep, opening night. Right. I saw it the next next morning, Saturday morning. Um, I guess we should start with the plot. I wanted to ask about your screening experience because I feel like that had a lot to do with my impression of the film. But let's start with the plot, and we'll move from there. Uh, Courtesy of one Jack Duff on IMDb. I totally just ripped off his plot synopsis. And changed it a little bit, because it wasn't perfect. Uh, After the events of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, Batman and Wonder Woman search the world, only to find three extraordinary metahumans, Cyborg, Aquaman, and The Flash, to form the well-known alliance, the Justice League, to save the world from mounting destruction. The Justice League. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun, that's right. So...
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where do we be even begin? Uh, okay, right. so let, let me go with my initial impression. So I set the bar really low for this because I, I, I had my heart broken over Suicide Squad. I look forward to that movie all year, and it was so bad. You're, so, you're so a big I just, comic book fan, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I put my bar super low, wasn't expecting much, and, you know, so I enjoyed it. And, and I'm not going to deny that, you know, I laughed a lot. I had a good time. The runtime is right at two hours. At the same time, I will acknowledge that it's kind of a disaster. It's very like, <laughs> di- well, like plot, plot wise, story wise, like I mean, who even knows? I couldn't really tell you what's going on. You know, I know that they're trying to form the Justice League, and then there's a big bad guy coming that's he's going to destroy the world with really bad CGI. Like that's <laughs> that's his power. Right. Um, Steppenwolf and here's the thing so as as an avid comic book reader I have yet to encounter Steppenwolf in anything I read and I've been reading DC about five six years straight now Uh, you know so and I know that he's supposed to pave the way for Darkseid and he's gonna be he's the real super big bad that we're gonna see but I mean he was a pretty nothing villain that was all CGI like nothing special about him he just you know could punch harder than the Justice League Right, that's
0: that's kind of his whole thing. I think part of part of my experience here was influenced by going to see Thor: Ragnarok because I saw that not too long before this one, and I almost wish Justice League could have come out in a vacuum, where it wasn't directly influenced by the movies near it, because Thor: Ragnarok and this movie are two very different movies. Um, but this movie felt like some like like a comic book movie made by a guy who'd seen all the comic book movies and thought, "I'm gonna make one of those." And Thor Ragnarok felt like a comic book movie made by a guy who saw all the comic book movies and was like, I hate all of these, and I'm going right. to make one, but it's going to be my own way. And that's what, right, I, yeah. that's what I wished for Justice League. It just felt so boilerplate. Like, I don't know anything about um, Steppenwolf. I was going to say Dark
1: Side, but Steppenwolf. I don't know anything about Steppenwolf.
0: Right, but I do know about the Justice League. Like, we've all seen the cartoons. We know them. Like, they're sure. America's heroes. They're the greatest, Yeah. And that's a layup, like the, the, the lead getting together, the characters, the actors that play them, their characters, like I'm into them. The villain was so like standard generic CGI. I got to take over the world and destroy everything. Yeah. Villain. I mean, we, we
1: were just missing like a big blue beam you know, <laughs> since that's that's been like DC's biggest uh, bad guys is our big blue beams at the end of the movie.
0: Yeah, well, technically, remember that, uh, technically, Steppenwolf does teleport into situations via Big Blue Beam, so... True. Yeah, I mean, that 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 was in there. Um, I, I like that it drew on the settings of a lot of the... I would say a lot of the previous DC films, but who am I kidding? There's like four. Um, you got to see a little bit more of what was going on in Wonder Woman's kind of world. A little bit more of what was going on in Bruce Wayne's world. Um, a little bit more Metropolis... Uh, which was good i you know I think it's important to kind of help set that that setting you know whereas Marvel is very much like well, it's set in America the the Avengers towers in New York DC has to set up Gotham and Metropolis like you have to make these fictional cities exist
1: you know I don't um, I couldn't even really tell a difference of the cities like to me that they just have like zero like characteristics that stand out as from there's just like the generic city this is where we're at,
0: oh of course, and it's not. It's worth pointing out, I think, look at Gotham and, like, the Nolan films. Like, it basically looks like Chicago or New York. exactly. But it seems real because it looks like something we know, you know? I'm like, oh, okay, I could get behind that as being a real place, you know? Whereas Gotham here, like, it kind of doesn't even really have an identity. There aren't a whole lot of, like, sweeping landscape shots of Gotham. There's not a whole lot of, like, setting.
1: Yeah, the the opening shot, so it starts out with, like, Batman swinging around, like, uh, he's chasing a bad guy and he's swinging around like a water tower on the rooftops. And it's just, I mean, it, it looks like, uh, I mean, I'm not like a high school play, but it <laughs> just looks so unreal and just like not convincing at all.
0: I definitely figured out that was, that was all Whedon that whole bit. Right. Uh, yeah. I read that somewhere. I was like, ah, okay, good to know. That's Joss Whedon.
1: That's, that's what that is. So, uh, I'm gonna. I want to talk about just some of the issues. So, so the main thing is just like plot-wise, it makes like very little sense. There's something about Steppenwolf coming to to get some mother boxes so he can do something. <laughs> and it's like, as a comic book reader, I was like, this is like super super comic book stuff. Oh, you have this generic powerful thing, and he's got to come get it so he can do the thing. And it's just. You know, sometimes I think that a lot of comic book plot lines aren't really good for cinema because they are so otherworldly and so kind of fantastical, and have lots of a lot of elements of fantasy that I don't think would transfer well on the big screen. But they're kind of trying to do that in Justice League, and I'm like, I'm not real sure that that it works or that they should be trying to go down that road.
0: Right. I think something. I, yeah, I, I noticed about kind of the, kind of the characters and right. the plot. The Justice League characters feel like caricatures of their characters. Like Batman was so Batman, it was too much, whereas like in a Marvel film, and I shouldn't be comparing because they're not the same, but like in Iron Man per se, the first Iron Man film, the whole movie, Tony Stark is made to look like just kind of a guy who's a dick who kind of ends up in this unfortunate situation and kind of gets tangled up in this area where by the end of the movie, his last line is, I am the Iron Man. Like, he doesn't even really become Iron Man until the end of the film. And even then, it's like a natural evolution of where he would be. He seems realistic. He seems relatable. Batman, in this movie, is like... He's like a caricature of Batman. He's like (laughs) Batman Plus. He's too much Batman. He doesn't feel... Like, at one point, Bruce Wayne in the movie goes to find... Uh, Arthur Arthur Curry what's his name Aquaman yeah. basically yeah. and when he's talking to this village full of people hoping to get some clues on where he can find Aquaman no lie Bruce Wayne's Bruce Wayne's plan is to offer them money he's just, <laughs> he just says like I'll give you 25,000 if you can tell me where the Aquaman is and I'm like okay you're here on behalf of Batman Bruce Wayne would not be in a village out in Sweden or wherever looking for Aquaman you're basically Batman here why are you throwing money at him like yeah, what are well, you doing? You well, know like what oh are my you God. This is something bigger than like just I don't know. Like it, well especially it's, uh. okay
1: so so Batman is you know the world's greatest detective. If anything he's, he's supposed to be He's yeah. supposed to be doing some detecting and if anything he would he would find where Aquaman is and Build the Bat Sub and go down and and find him and su- su- catch him by surprise. Like that's right. that's what he would do in the in the, in you know in comic book writing because he's a detective and he just knows where you where you are and all things like that. Yeah, it's it's very uninspired and I, I think that's where dc's really going wrong. Is like what makes comics interesting are the characters and that's what you have to really bring to life on screen and that's what Marvel's done a great job of and it's just like. Uh, You know, like Barry Allen, like he's funny in in the movie, The Flash, but he is. Yeah, but I'm you're not getting too much of him. And what's weird, and this is what I said before, is that they're pointing towards their solo films like they're hinting at uh, the Flashpoint Paradox, which is going to be The Flash's solo movie. You know, so, but that's kind of an origin story almost. So it's like, you have the group movie, but then you're going to do the origin story. It's just like, it's out of order. And Aquaman is pretty much like, he's pointless. Like he doesn't, he literally <laughs> doesn't do anything. Like he looks super cool, but like he, he does, he, he just, like he doesn't do anything with like why he doesn't bring any fish to like fight anything. He doesn't like really ever control the water. He just kind of throws the, you know, the Triton at people. Right. Right.
0: It, and that was a problem in the movie underutilization of characters. They didn't do a very like the, the league even though this is their first I mean their first foray into being the league so they don't exactly know how to work together. A lot of a lot of powers were underutilized, exactly that with with Aquaman. Like it never once does he do anything with fish ever or water, really. <laughs> that just doesn't happen. Like or, or another one that really fascinated me is is the incredible underutilization of the Flash. The Flash in this movie uh for the most part, he's not—he's not a fighter, and I'm not too familiar with the with the comics, so maybe that's not how it is in the comics. But like, I don't—he th- never really hits anybody. He kind of just runs around and helps hostages, and to me, that's a problem because the Flash essentially has the ability to stop time. I mean, really, he yeah. can move faster than everybody else in the room. When is that utilized? It kind of just isn't because if it was, if the Flash could run around and hit everybody in the room there wouldn't be any fights. So they have to figure out a way to make the flash suck compared well, the, to everybody else. So, so Batman
1: is, and wonder woman can keep up and like, come on, it doesn't, we're not fooling anybody. Yeah. You know? th- this is a problem that I think that they did when they started this universe. Okay. So, okay. So you start with man of steel, man of steel is supposed to be the, the origin story of Superman. So you have young, like fresh Superman, but Batman is like the old hard drinking, which which is kind of <laughs> weird because yep. uh, c- he never drinks in, in like the comics or any of the other movies and you know so he's like hard drinking and he kills people and so which is essentially the Batman inspired by The Dark Knight Returns which is old Batman like retired Batman so you have young Superman old Batman fresh new Flash it's just like the the timelines are all over the place yeah and
0: they like somebody thought that would work they're like oh let's take cool timelines from each each version of the comics and sp- Stick them together. Like it's just disorganized. And I, I it feels disorganized. Yeah, it doesn't I, feel like these characters are all coming from the same universe.
1: I feel like they didn't think that far ahead is actually what happens. It's like, oh like let's do Batman. We'll do old Batman. And then they go to do Justice League and they're like, Oh crap, we've done young Superman. Oh well we'll just make it work, you know. It's just I, I feel like that the thought process has not gotten gone that far and that's why it's it's a problem.
0: Right, and putting the cart before the horse is such a brilliant way to describe it because it really is exactly what it is. Like, the movie starts and... Okay, here's Batman. There's no... Like, don't... It's a problem of show versus tell. Like, don't tell us he's Batman. Show us he's Batman. And not in some crappy opening scene that Joss Whedon tacked on to the beginning of the movie. Which also, by the way, I I did want to mention this, wasn't actually the opening shot of the film. The opening shot of the film uh, before the title card... Uh, Justice League was filmed, <laughs> filmed from the perspective of a phone, which I thought was really perplexing. And it's two kids filming Superman in a flashback before the events of Dawn of Justice uh, from their phone, talking like interviewing him for their podcast or something. And I was so like watching it; all I could think was like, "This is just weird," because Zack Snyder would never put this in a movie when well, it's like two kids talking to Superman. And and like that was, I think, the best attempt at like crafting a character before they kind of talk about him in the film. Like it was, it was a good way to say, okay, here's Superman is supposed to be this hero that kids look up to. Got it. But like, I don't know. We knew that you didn't really accomplish
1: anything. It's forgettable. I mean, you didn't even remember it at the beginning of the movie. (laughs) You remember the crappy Batman fight. And the other thing, the more characters you have, the less screen time they all have. And you, so you lose time in, in doing any kind of character development. And I think Superman is kind of just inherently hard to write because he's kind of the perfect Person, he's the paragon of justice and everything. So that's it's challenging to write a good character that doesn't have any flaws. Mm -hmm. But like we don't even get close to that we don't even like attempt to get into to any of that. No, it's it's frustrating to me because as a comic book reader, like there's so many there's so many great storylines that they could pull from that could make entire trilogies or entire films, and they're just kind of pulling a little bit from this one, a little bit from that one you know I have heard that they're doing uh, they're gonna do an animated uh, version of Death of Superman, which is a it's a classic story arc but I mean that would make a that would make a great film trilogy. you could do Death of Superman the first movie, Reign of the Superman where you have like the cy- the cyborg Superman and like you know some of these other really interesting characters that I think people would like kind of I think it would work well on screen and then he comes back in the third movie but it's like these are. There's so much material there, and they're just like you know, pull it for thirty seconds. <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll look real cool in the trailer. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it feels like. And and
0: you're right, like it's so mismatched that no one character feels like they get enough time to justify their their experience in the film. And you get interested, like the idea of them making a Flash movie, like that sounds pretty cool. The Flash arguably is the only one that I think really does get that precedence that you know he's kind of a normal guy and want to know more about him. But even then you don't find out like how he got his powers. Like you don't, you don't find out a lot of stuff like, because they kind of explain a little bit of background story behind him and kind of show you what's going on. But like, you don't know why he's in the position he's in. You just know he is. Yeah. And I guess that's what,
1: yeah. The same thing happens with Aquaman where they, for about a minute, they do an undersea scene with way too much CGI and it's totally phoned in. Yep. it's him talking with Mara, who is like queen of the sea or whatever, and it's they hint a little bit at his backstory, which I guess is a setup for his solo movie as well. But again, you're you're getting hinted at the origin before the, you know, group feature. It just doesn't make sense. No, it it doesn't. And you know, and poor Amber Heard had, you know, a whole forty five seconds of screen time.
0: <laughs> yeah, I saw in an interview somewhere Jason Momoa said that they could have made a whole they could have made two films out of what was shot out of Justice League because so much of his footage was left on the cutting room floor that he feels like they could have they could have just made two and made had way more Aquaman in it and it could have worked, which is probably true. I mean, Zack Snyder's original cut was three hours. It makes you wonder what they cut and what they swapped. I mean, you can't help but think about that. And to kind of talk a little bit more about that, let's talk about color because you, you mentioned earlier, yeah, the idea that all of the dark shots were Snyder and all of the light shots were Whedon, um, what? Are, yeah, do you
1: have anything? Can you expound on that a little bit? So, the, there's a part about halfway through the movie when we're, it, it's a big group scene. There's a big group fight, and it happens during the day. And you know, I arguably some, the best
0: fight scene of the film. Yeah,
1: and yeah. I and I saw some some cuts from the trailer that show that same or scenes from that same thing shot at night. And, and then, so the, the night stuff is, is Snyder. The other thing someone pointed out is that the, the costumes are made to look good at night, but they look really like kind of not great in like the bright, broad daylight that Joss Whedon has, has brought us. Yep. Agreed.
0: And that's – yeah, you're right. That's one of the interesting things that I, hadn't, I wouldn't have thought about. Um, but I don't think was necessarily a bad thing. The Marvel films, almost exclusively things happen during the day. It is bright. I mean, that was one of the things I noticed about Thor Ragnarok is that scene. um, This is actually kind of the opposite of my point. This might be a counterpoint to myself. Um, That scene where in, in the trailer, at least where Thor is fighting Hulk in like a barbarian arena in the original trailer, that was daylight. And then they made it nighttime in the movie, which was weird. They changed that. Joss Whedon likes to shoot a lot of stuff during the day. The whole big final fight at the end of the Avengers with Loki in New York with the things flying around, it's all day, the whole thing. Like, brightest day, middle of the day, middle of a weekday, why not? Meanwhile, Zack Snyder is is clearly going for dark, grimy night, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because he's trying to do something different from Marvel. So I don't know if that was necessarily a misstep. I'll never know because they had the Marvel guys step in and do it for him. So now you have this weird kind of mismatch of identity. Yeah, where well, you have these characters who look kind of goofy um, because they're not color corrected for what what day it, it is. And
1: it kind of influences your experience. The other thing, did you have any thoughts on the music? Uh, I mean, I know that they changed uh, Danny Elfman at the last minute to come in and do the score. Um, I thought it was very uninspired. I know that there was this whole big thing about, oh, I'm going to bring back the classic Batman theme. Yep. And yeah, and there's some hints of that. And same thing, there's a brief thing of the classic John Williams Superman theme. And I saw read this really interesting article where he was, ta- where Danny Elfman talked about, oh, you know, there's all this great superhero music that should be used through all the superhero films, you know, and which I've vehemently disagreed with, you know, and I'm like, well, you're basically saying you just want people to keep using your Batman theme from 1989 and, and everything, but it's like those are that's music of a different era and a different. Uh, it was just a different time and in different style of film composition, uh or film scoring rather, and right. it just and I, I feel it, it it doesn't work. Like I don't want to hear, you know, the the five minute Superman march. Like now, it works great in nineteen seventy eight, but yeah, it, you know. And I was and I made the point that John Williams himself he's updated himself. He's modernized himself. Like the classic Star Wars themes are these long. Themes like you know the Imperial March or Leia's theme there are these long, like two to three-minute things. But then, you know, Force Awakens, Kylo Ren's theme is literally five notes. Like right. it's like he's he's like I feel like film scoring has kind of gone more minimal, m- more minimalistic, uh, more about mood and less about these like life light motifs. Mm-hmm. And and John Williams himself—he's modernized himself. And so I don't know this whole idea of like Danny Elfman being like, oh, we still need to be using my theme from 1989. It's just like, no, we don't.
0: Right, that was one of the brilliant things about uh, Hans Zimmer's work in Superman and or Man of Steel. No, Man, Superman, Man of Steel. Man of Steel. Yeah, sorry, I get confused with the Brandon Routh film and the uh, Henry Cavill film. Uh, Man of Steel, and also in the Nolan trilogy, is his the way he expanded the themes for those two characters for Superman and Batman by minimalizing by taking kind of two key notes out of the theme and drawing them out and modernizing them and it works it works really well it's astounding how well it works Um, meanwhile Danny Elfman's like I'm gonna use the same old stuff I was using and then kind of add some stuff to it like I don't know man (laughs) like it's just forgettable I I, it's, it's the same problem a lot of the Marvel movies have so I guess it's kind of in the same ballpark but like I couldn't hum the theme to Justice League
1: I have no idea
0: yeah, it's it's it, a blank
1: it, spot in my head. That's another thing that was like it's a setup that you should have knocked out of the park. You know? Come up with whatever recognizable it doesn't even have to be good, it just has to be recognizable. And it's just like no, I, I didn't even realize there was a Justice League theme.
0: Right. And that's that's kind of the maybe there isn't. Like I don't know. And that's that's the problem. Like I can hum the Superman theme. I can hum the Batman theme. I can't hum the Justice League theme. Also <laughs> No, I can kinda hum the Wonder Woman theme, now that I think about it. I think I know that one. I, the I Junkie know. XL, yeah. yeah. The, oh, yeah. Junkie XL definitely had a little bit to do with this movie, right? I saw his name in the credits somewhere.
1: I think he got. he's the one who got cut. I think oh, him, okay. and Han, him and Hans Zimmer got cut, I think, maybe. I wonder what, what must have happened if you cut
0: Junkie XL and Hans Zimmer for Danny Elfman, the guy that made the Simpsons theme, you know? Not to say he's bad. Elfman's great. Just, you're right. It's a different time.
1: Um, yeah, it's, it's a different era, and, and I think... And you know sometimes it works. You know, Junkie XL's work in in Mad Max is is great. Phenomenal. And the wonder the Wonder Woman theme is great, but um, yeah, I mean the the what Hans Zimmer did with both Man of Steel and the Dark Knight trilogy it's just it it just adds so much and it modernizes the movie right. a lot more. Like I don't want to hear the nineteen eighty nine theme, you know, in it in in those movies. And I think that's.
0: All of this, I think, is indicative of of the problem with Justice League. You have characters who are coming from different timelines and different stories thrown together in one movie, a lot of which don't have backgrounds. You have a a number of directors, two different ones, who are two very different backgrounds, trying to create one thing that works. You have different composers with different ideas of what the movie should sound like, approaching it from different angles. And you kind of end up with just this mishmash of a movie that's good, but it's not great. It's not even yeah.
1: really that good. Um, so what, yeah. one of one of my big complaints is that a lot of a lot of times comic book movies lack comic book moments yeah and and what I mean by that is you know when you read comics you know it's all about page turns like you know you turn the page and there's either a big reveal or someone has like some great dialogue or you know i've I've read comics before where I just like gasp. At after a page turn, and I feel like those moments are just so absent from the DC films. Like nothing, and, and it's not about surprise. It's just about you know maybe you create a really great badass scene or some really epic dialogue, but it's just like it's completely lacking.
0: Yeah. Nope. I agree. I suppose if you had to give it a rating, what what would you give Batman B or Batman V Superman uh, Justice League?
1: Um. You know, when I rated it on the, the Reddit uh, survey, I gave it a five out of ten.
0: You gave it a five out
1: of ten, and I, it was—it was, it was actually the the majority was actually seven out of ten, which I was surprised at.
0: That's a little surprising for Reddit. Yeah, I, I would give it a four out of ten. I I don't—it's—it's—it's it's, it's not bad enough to warrant like a two or three. It's not like a crappy B movie. Like the bones are there. It's just not fleshed out enough, you know, to to make it engaging. Like, there's a couple laps, but I don't know. It was just kind of a snooze fest for me. Yeah. Yeah. We should probably wrap up this segment soon. We should. Yeah, we should probably move on. Something we wanted to talk about was uh, this kind of wacky idea for a segment that we've talked about going, doing back and forth. <sighs> I'm doing a terrible job of introducing this. Uh, the Death of Cinema, right? The
1: Death. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> we need we need a theme stat <laughs> we do the, yeah i'll write us you know what i'll call danny elfman and he can <laughs> please <laughs> write do us a, cra- a crappy forgettable theme
0: <laughs> yeah i'll call junkie xl have him get started and then call danny elfman to pick up where he left off and we'll come <laughs> up with something completely forgettable for the death of cinema yeah the idea is is what's what's killing movies this week What's what's killing the, the the film industry? What's what's the next big thing that's going to inevitably lead to the downfall of what of cinema
1: as we know it? Right, and we we need to kind of explain that. Uh, this comes from from the phenomenon that usually every week there's like three to five articles of <laughs> this is ki- this is killing X, you know, XYZ is killing cinema, XYZ is killing film, XYZ is killing movies. Like every single week, and it, it seems to cycle the same like five or six topics. And but it, it's interesting that it's you know it it's just a constant thing and yet you know we obviously we still have movies
0: right so this week on the death of cinema you had wanted to talk about rotten tomatoes That's which right. is Big a popular to- one rotten Big tomatoes. Tomato. yeah rotten tomatoes is usually what's killing cinema. It's oh it's it's terrible for film reviews and people don't go see movies because of the rotten tomato score and it's rotten tomatoes fault right so what did rotten tomatoes do
1: So, I mean, the way they're set up is an aggregate. So reviewers, you know, from newspapers or shows or wherever, they submit their review and based on the amount of positive reviews to negative reviews, it gets a a freshness rating. Anything over 60% is supposed to be rated fresh. Um And so now what happens a lot of times Is someone will see that a, a film Has maybe a 40% freshness Or or I guess at that point It's rotten but whatever that score is And people are basing whether or not to go see a film Off those ratings and so Studios are upset by that because You know if you make your bad movie And no one goes to see it because of this rating They're, they're upset and they're blaming Rotten Tomatoes Not the fact that you know they made a crappy movie Right Um so where does this lead us with Justice League? So this was was really kind of shady and interesting at the same time. So usually the scores for a movie will be released like Tuesday, the Tuesday before it comes out, Tuesday or Wednesday before the release. And so, you know, people can go ahead and start making decisions. They kind of held the scores ransom until I think it was Thursday at noon. Um, so there, there was no score. Uh, you could now you could go read reviews and you know at other places and i think metacritic had their scores up but you could not see the percentage of fresh or rotten until noon on thursday which I, which is you know 7 hours before opening night you know right. and i bought and like a fool i bought my ticket on monday like a fool um <laughs> so you know i was already going and so the the score gets revealed and it's 37% fresh <laughs> And, you know, I, I generally, and, I, and I'm guilty of just of just going on the score as well, but if something's not above, like, 50%, I'm generally staying home. You know, yeah. every now and then there's something I'm just dedicated to see. Like, I was dedicated to see Suicide Squad. But, you know, if it's bad, and I mean, I, I'd plan on seeing Justice League 2 no matter how bad the scores were going to be, but it, it feels pretty disingenuous to kind of hide the scores from the general public so they can go see it before they know that it's bad
0: right and me being being a cynical film goer typically i would think or at least when i heard this story the first thing i thought was man DC must have cut a deal with Rotten Tomatoes to hold the score, like to, to build hype. And that's exactly what I thought it was. I was like, wow, look at the look at the press this movie is getting over Rotten Tomatoes, over a review site, an aggregate review site, and everybody's talking about Justice League. What's the score gonna be? Like what that's great press. I mean it made news, news stations were talking about it. When they weren't talking about Coco or any other movies, they were talking about Justice League because of Rotten Tomatoes. So I thought to myself, this seems like a PR move. This seems like a push. But it wasn't, I don't think. I think the reason it happened, and correct me if I'm wrong, is because Rotten Tomatoes was – they have some kind of review video they put out now or something? Uh, there's some sort of, like, Facebook show. Right. They've they, started
1: that- – Yeah. That they, start, launch, that they launch at noon or something.
0: Right, and that was the idea, to get people to watch their show. They were going to hold the Justice League review until then, which I think, honestly, it might say more about Rotten Tomatoes than it does about the industry because a lot of people don't think very highly of Rotten Tomatoes, at least in, in film circles. Sure. Um, to see that Rotten not only doesn't really care about them but is willing to trivialize a review for a film a lot of people want to see in order to promote their Facebook show is kind of frightening in a way, I guess that that's, that's kind of where they're at. They're, they're like, no, we, we don't care. We're kind of, we're kind of, we're moving to the beat of our own drum. It's encouraging to see that independence. I think um, to, to not be held down from big studios and publishers to say, no, 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 we're going to, we're going to do our own thing. But at the same time, like guys, Come on, like, you know what people, you're popular people, for. People yeah. go
1: to your site to see the scores of what's coming out. Yeah, nobody why cares you about your stupid well, Facebook show. <laughs> why, are, why are you hiding that? And, and, you know, it gets into a bigger conversation of, you know, the big complaint is like, oh, well, no one's reading reviews. They're just looking at the score and going for that. And, then, and I'm like, well, me personally, I don't like I don't like to read reviews or listen to reviews until after I go see the movie. But I do kind of, you know, I want to know if I'm going to go see a steaming pile. Right. You know, so so that I don't, I don't go see it, and maybe that's unfair. But to me, the, the other thing is, like, there's a certain hypocrisy with it as well, because studios want to want to uh, condemn Rotten Tomatoes but, until the scores are good. You know, when you, when a film gets like a ninety percent fresh, all they're all about like, oh, ninety percent fresh on on tomatoes. You know, they advertise it, mm-hmm. so it's like, yeah, it, it's very convenient as to. You know how how it's how the movies are being reviewed,
0: right? Biting the hand that throws tomatoes at you. It's <laughs> it's weird, and, and I, I I don't really have much more to say on it other than um I don't know that's what's killing cinema this week, and I'm sure next it's, week we'll have something about Netflix or Movie Pass or some other god
1: awful thing <laughs> thing. But yeah, um, and, and it's interesting because what what I've kind of done is I I guess I kind of have ranges like like I said anything between like. Under 50%, I'm probably not going to go see. 50 to 70%, yeah, if, if I'm really interested, I'll go. 70% or higher, if I'm interested, I'm probably, yeah, definitely into it. So, right. I mean, you, you just kind of take it with a grain of salt. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely.
1: And I, I wish people wouldn't take it so
0: seriously, but I mean... Like you said, it's it's not like studios aren't perpetuating it. Like I remember for Baby Driver, Sony was like straight up had their ninety seven percent fresh thing like on their trailer. They were all about it. They had a speedometer counting up the Rotten Tomatoes score until it got to ninety seven. <laughs> I mean, it was ridiculous. Which which arguably might have been might have been staged, but that's for another show. I think. Um, yeah, so yeah. It, you you can't tell people not to look at the Rotten Tomatoes score and then straight up use it in your advertising
1: as, yeah, as exactly. a tool to
0: get people to go see your movie.
1: Well, and, and, you know, they always say, oh, well, you know, people don't see the movie without going and seeing the score. And it's like, you're just, you're upset that people, that you can't trick people into seeing your bad movie like no. you used to but before, you know, when you had to actually get, wait for the paper and read the reviews or wait, you know, back in the 90s or 80s or any time before when you had to really wait for that kind of information to come out, you might just go see the movie before you get, you get the reviews. Now we're in the opposite. But it's like studios could more easily fool people into seeing something bad right. than they can now. And my argument
0: as a, as a passive viewer will always be, we'll make your movies better, and people will go see them. But Exactly. Whatever. Yeah, you, some, sometimes you can't fool people, and that's where we're at now. And it's like, well, do what you got to do. Anyway, to move on, we've got one more movie to talk about, Coco. I did not see this movie. You saw I this did. movie. I, I got did. a little plot synopsis pulled up. Do you want me to read it, or you want to explain it? Uh, You read it. All right. This is written by Disney Pixar on IMDb. They wrote their own plot synopsis, so good on you, Disney. Can't say I'm surprised. Despite his family's baffling, generations-old ban on music, Miguel dreams of becoming an accomplished musician like his idol, Ernesto de la Cruz. Desperate to prove his talent, Miguel finds himself in the stunning and colorful Land of the Dead following a mysterious chain of events. Along the way, he meets charming trickster Hector, and together they set off on an extraordinary journey to unlock the real story behind Miguel's... Family history. So, Coco, you saw the film. What did you think? Yeah,
1: so, I mean, it it, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, You know, Pixar doesn't make too many missteps. And, you know, as Mark Kermode says, he, he always claims that we are in a golden age of animation. That there, we just have incredible animated films mm. coming out every year, and and this is among you know the year's best animated films. I would definitely say, you know, the story, you know, it's a little bit by the numbers, a little bit predictable, but it it's still done really well. You know, it's about family, it's about chasing your dreams, and also the the sacrifices we make to chase our dreams and to also to change other other things equally if not more important than um, you know what your dreams may be. Uh, and this is great celebration of mexican culture you know it reminds me a lot of of moana how that was a celebration of polynesian culture they've done a lot of those same things where there's there's a lot that, of dialogue that's in spanish and it's not it's not translated for you just like it wasn't translated in moana and oh, wow. um, i mean i know i know a fair amount of spanish so i understood most of it but there were still things i didn't but they don't you know hold your hand you can you can understand it through context clues and also, if you've been around any bilingual people, like I used to be a teacher at a at a Title I school that was uh, largely Hispanic, all the students were bilingual, and they would kind of switch in and out of English and Spanish all the time. And so they capture that in the movie where, you know, the, the parents and the different family members are, are switching languages kind of just a, as it flows. And that's, that's very accurate to people that are bilingual and people that... that you know kind of grow up with both heritages and that's what i, I felt they they just did a really good job of c- kind of capturing that like the the family aspect of mexican culture and the language and there's this great there's this great gag where the the grandma is chasing the kid with uh her um sandal la chancla as we <laughs> <laughs> as which is is kind of like a, an infamous uh you know, stereo, stereotype. Yeah. Is, you know, get, no, get, I I get, get that joke, and I yeah, I don't know a whole lot about
0: Mexican culture.
1: Um, so, so, it, so, so that part is great. And then when we get to like the land of the dead, that's when the animation uh, is really great. That's when we see these big worlds, and that's what Pixar is known for is kind of this world building, like in Monsters Inc. or um, Inside Out when they're inside a, a it's right Riley's head. It, so they do this great job of building this great world of the dead land of the dead right so i didn't
0: see it so yeah i'll, I'll kind of I'll, I'll throw you some questions and you, you dig into it a little bit here first off it's a kid's movie and i have i usually have trouble judging a kid's film because i'm not a kid so i'm usually very like clinical in my approach of reviewing it but i, I i'll see i think
1: you'll do okay at it how what was the runtime like so this is an interesting question <laughs> because so the film itself I think is eighty six minutes. All right, not quite ninety. It's just under feature length. Sure, yeah. and and it's it's the perfect length for that age if you're looking at younger audiences. Um, but there is a twenty minute Frozen <laughs> short at the beginning, and it Frozen like the the Disney movie Frozen. Yes, and it's this ham fisted made for TV. Like shoehorn thing in, and it and it comes twenty minutes after twenty minutes of previews. So, it Coco did not start until about forty five minutes after like start time. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like right, Olaf's and, Frozen Adventure. Yes, and you know, I, I I was reading online that people were really upset about that in Mexico. They had to pull the short because people were like rioting and just like really <laughs> upset about this. You know, extra. Twenty-minute thing. Um, people were like, "What is this?" And I and I read about other people, um, employees at cinemas having to refund people their money because people were coming out and complaining about like, "What is this? This isn't the right movie." Um, so it it was a really bizarre decision, um, and I can tell it was a total you know commercial. Well, let's let's do this holiday Christmas thing. It'll help sell Frozen toys, yeah. and uh, you know, total crashback. Uh, cash grab and it just it 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 soured the viewing experience a little bit I mean luckily I could kind of you know separate it but it was like man what were you thinking
0: yeah that's something uh, we talked about a little bit before we we did the show and that's one of the things I've always really really enjoyed about Pixar shorts but I've also been kind of precarious about is when you run a short in front of a film you set a tone for the film before it starts you just do you know you kind of give us a peek behind the curtain and okay here's what we've been working on Here's kind of something we're doing, and you get a little bit of animation, you get some color, you get some music, maybe some voice, and it kind of gets, it kind of sets up an image in your head a little bit. It sets the stage. It's like a, it's like a prelude, you know. And for a Pixar short, normally three to five minutes, something creative, something fun, I can get into it. For yeah, like a 21-minute Frozen commercial, like you're really hurting. Like that is not a good way to set the
1: stage for what is an 86-minute romp through the land of the dead, you know well especially since you know apparently it was like originally supposed to be made for tv abc special so it's it's that level of quality it's uh, it's i mean it's really bad it's just really try it's it's like a non story about like hunting for christmas traditions and And, you know, it it turns the runtime into over two hours, which is just, it's too long for, that's too long for most adults, (laughs) honestly. It is definitely too long for young children. I mean, they got, I was in a screening that had a lot of kids, and they were definitely towards the last 20 minutes of the movie, were getting really restless, starting to get, starting to talk, starting to move around a lot. And, like, I mean, who could blame them?
0: Right. Who could? I couldn't. So, yeah, that's, maybe we should have saved that for the Death of Cinema segment, that we should have talked about the Olaf's Frozen adventure. Frozen is, yeah. Anyway. It's killing cinema. Um. As far as the movie's plot goes and pacing, something I noticed about a kid's movie like um, Kubo and the Two Strings by Laika, uh, I enjoyed it. It was very pretty. It was very good to look at. But the plot was kind of hard to follow. It's a little scatterbrained. It's kind of just like we're jumping from set piece to set piece. And when I would address this concern to people who would seen it, their, their response was, well, it's a kid's movie. Like, they don't, they don't have to naturally explain the evolution of everything. And I was like, well, you kind of do, but I get where you're coming from. You're right. Like, kids won't know any different. So for Coco, how does that work as far as the evolution of the plot goes? Does everything seem kind of natural, or does it feel a little forced? Does it feel like, okay, now we have to ram the character through this next segment to get to here? You know, how, how is that? It So
1: it's a little bit more it's a little bit more the other way where it's a little bit too by the numbers and it's very, the evolution is very predictable and very kind of archetypal. You're like, nothing's really a a surprise, but, but the telling and the visuals are so good. Like you don't care. You don't care that it's predictable, but it's it's more the opposite way of where, you know, now that we're at A, we're going to go to B and now to C, and it's very obvious how we're doing that.
0: Right. I know the film was produced, um, a lot of the cast at least, I think a lot of the crew that put it together, were Hispanic. Like, that was a big part of it, is kind of drawing that in. Something I thought was... A little exploitative, and I might get this to this in a minute. Is I saw before Justice League a pre-roll trailer, like a like a two-minute featurette, three-minute featurette for Coco, and it would show scenes from the movie with like the music intercut with like interviews from the cast and crew about like their experience making the film. And like Gael Garcia Bernal was in there, and like the kid who voiced the main character was in there. And what was interesting about that for me was that every single person they showed that worked on that film was Hispanic. They didn't show anybody of any other race. It was exclusively Hispanic, which is fine. But I wanted to ask about that influence in the film. Yeah, does it feel forced or does everything you see, like the mom, like the grandma running around with the sandal, feel like, yeah, this makes sense in this world? You know, this, I I can get behind this. Did you feel like you, you, did it feel too foreign or did you kind of, did they make you feel at home?
1: Yeah, I felt really comfortable in it and it it was very at home, like like you said. And I think. You know, there's a fine line between exploitation and celebration. And this is definitely on the celebratory side of, you know, celebrating families, celebrating Mexican culture and not not exploiting it. And it's, you know, there's a fine line and who knows where it is. I mean, some people might disagree. But, you know, I think it's a it's a great step forward because Disney, as well as lots of other studios, have exploited lots of cultures in <laughs> cinema. So I yeah, so it's it's um you know I think it's a good step that this is a celebration of a culture and they don't you know they don't translate that there's not su- subtitles for you you just like no you're gonna listen and, and enjoy and use context clues to figure it out and something uh, something I noticed speaking of context clues in a lot of
0: kids films I don't know if you saw this ad for this new Sony animated feature that's coming out the Peter Rabbit film It's called Peter Rabbit I think. Um, they have a bunch of CGI rabbits running around this live action movie and each of the rabbits has some kind of distinguishing feature about them to make you easily visually identify which one is which at a very quick notice. It's for kids. Like the main character is wearing this blue kind of hoodie. There'd be another character, with like a red vest, a yellow raincoat, that kind of thing, you know, to make it very easily distinguishable. And something I'd noticed in this movie in the land of the dead, there's a lot of bright, vibrant colors. Um, are there a lot of characters you have to juggle in there and how do they distinguish them?
1: You know, are they, are they relatively distinguishable or do they all kind of blend together? So, I mean, that's a really good point. That's a good observation. I hadn't even really thought about that. Um, there are, there are a lot of characters because Miguel's family is, is involved and he has like several, like his, his parents, his aunt, aunt and uncles, grand, grandfather, grandmother, great grandmother. So there's lots of characters and, they distinguish them in... Well, it's interesting because in the Land of the Dead, they're all skeletons. So they kind of just has to have very different characteristics. Like the two of his uncles are very like tall and thin. And also just the kind of clothes they wear. Um, that's, a, that's a good kind of observation. They're like, because it, it could get very difficult to kind of tell them apart. I, I think a lot of it is the clothes, like uh, De La Cruz, who's like the, you know, the big kind of famous musician he has this big white outfit and big sombrero and rhinestones i mean it's like a big mariachi (laughs) guy so it's they use the costuming different like physical features there's hair um would you say
0: because i saw this article uh the other day is it a frightening film is it, you know, because a, a lot of dead folks walking around, you know? So, like, how does that work for age rangers, do you think? Can you take little, little kids to see it? Or is it a little, little in your face? I mean, where is it?
1: I mean, the, there are some dark moments. I mean, I think you do definitely do risk um, maybe bringing up some serious conversations with, with your kids or with, with younger audiences. It, it's one of those things, you know, real young kids they are just, they're, they don't really have a concept of, like, death. And so it's not going to be an issue. Right. Um, there's probably an age range where they might put two and two together and be like, Hey, what is this? Uh, is this where grandma is or something like that? So I, I think maybe depending on the age of your, your kids, you might have to be prepared to have certain conversations. Right. Um, Something I, th- I think is worth noting uh, and, and I'm hoping
0: you can kind of dispel this myth because when I so- first saw the trailer for Coco, I did a double take because I thought it looked shockingly similar to Blue Sky Animation's The Book of Life. Yes. Uh, and I've heard it's not that similar. But by definition, by very basic plot definition, it sounds very similar. Protagonist goes to the land of the dead To seek some kind of information and become a bigger person and overcome whatever obstacle he faces. I know it's a very simple premise. That's like saying that's like saying comic book movie hero fights comic book movie villain. Like there's not a whole lot to it, but sure. Yeah, where do the where does the where do the movies differentiate? Like where where do they get different?
1: Well, I didn't see (laughs) Land of the Dead, but when I first saw the yeah, all right. Well, uh, sorry, yeah, I'm sorry, Book of Life. Um, Whenever I. I um, first saw, saw I think it was a teaser for Coco. My first thought is like, that looks like that other movie that came yep. out a year. And it, it honestly, it made me not want to go see it because it looked to me like it was a ripoff. You know, I was very uninterested in seeing Coco until it kind of was starting to get some buzz and a lot of really positive reviews. So I can't really comment on on the similarities other than, you know, I mean, Hollywood does this a lot where, someone catches wind of another studio doing an idea and they're like, "Well, we're going to do it too." You know, like the jungle that's happening with the Jungle Book right now. Like the Jungle Book came out last year, but we also have the Andy Circus Jungle Book coming out next year. It's uh, it's almost like these things come in pairs sometimes.
0: Oh god, you're right. The Andy Circus Jungle Book. I forgot about that. Um just to kind of wrap this up, one other thing I did want to ask about uh the music. I mean, it's supposed to be a movie about this kid who's kind of a musician in that little featurette I saw before justice league, they, they had this whole bit about how they put mocap and, and had cameras studying like guitarists playing to like get finger
1: movements down to make sure everything looked as legit as possible. How did it sound? Uh, it sounded great. And you know, this is another area of like celebration versus exploitation that you can get into because the, the music is awesome and it's a lot of fun, but it's, it's also very true to like, mariachi style music and mariachi style playing one of the very cool things is the uh the, th- the opening disney theme you know how you have the you know when you wish upon a star and you see the castle of course at the very start so that's done in like a mariachi style and it it really works it, it's done really well with and i can tell with lots of like study and respect for that genre of music and the whole score is like that
0: yeah all right um, one thing Book of Life did, and I thought I saw something like this in the trailer for Coco, but maybe I'm wrong. Book of Life you did a couple of covers. They would cover popular songs in mariachi style. Did this movie do that? I don't think so. I think it was all originals. Okay, well, good. I can get behind that. Because if they did, I would have been like, wow, they, they really did a Book of Life. Um,
1: so I'm glad it all I think came together. I think there's really only a couple of songs of like... I mean, I, I think like there's the score, but then there's only a couple of actual big like numbers. Huh. All right. Well, you know, it's not it's not like a Frozen or something like that where it's like a, a movie musical,
0: right? Not too in your face. I can get yeah,
1: behind that. Yeah, it's a that. movie with a lot of music, I and mean, it's about music. So,
0: do you think it will please audiences on both sides of the wall? Like, will, bo- will both will both countries <laughs> the be <wall>. happy? <laughs> <laughs> um
1: well it's already been apparently it's been the highest grossing film in Mexico of all time right so it's definitely a big fan south of the border and I saw that it did actually overtake justice League on Friday night um Friday night ticket sales so it, it looks to be off to a straight, to a strong start I mean that's you that's normal for Pixar um I I definitely think it, it will I think it'll find an audience and it's it's a good holiday movie you know it's we're on the Thanksgiving holiday. Where am I going to take the kids to see? You know, it's um it kind of does it, it it writes itself. Would you recommend Coco? Absolutely. Uh get a rating. Um, <laughs> oh, I hate ratings. But, I know, they're the worst. Uh, well, you know, I would say eight of ten. Very strong. Strongly recommend. All right.
0: I'm an eight out of ten. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's a solid, solid review, especially compared
1: to a five out of ten for the league. <laughs>
0: I'm just disappointed. I wanted to like Justice League so much more than I did.
1: Uh, I think we all... You know, everything about it is uninspired. Like the logo. Like JL in black and white. Could you mm. get more boring? That's yep. like,
0: such a bummer.
1: Anyway, I think that about wraps our show. Is there anything
0: else you want to talk about? No, that's it. Okay.
1: Listen in next week.
0: Yeah, tune in next week for whatever we for whatever we're talking about. What are we going to go see next week? What's coming out?
1: Um... You know, that's a good, good thing. We should have thought about that, too. We'll figure it out. Uh, yeah. um, opening, wait, coming soon at the uh, Shape of Water, the, the Ooh, disaster Cameron artist. Toro. Disaster artist. That looks like good stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, well, yeah, I mean, we're getting to, into Oscar season. There's going to be some good stuff coming out in December. And, of course, three weeks, Star Wars. Star Wars. Ooh, i got to get my tickets. I hope I can still get tickets. I haven't got uh, tickets, be, yeah. I might be out of luck. I
0: might be out of luck. <laughs> I have to go to a really crappy theater somewhere. All right. Anyway, um, gosh, I don't really have a conclusion. I guess uh, for Off Script, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. And um, I know, some cheesy line like, see you at the movies or something. Yeah. <laughs> stop! Just stop talking, Zach. You oh, just stop yeah. talking. Just let it hang out. It's fine.